0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast I'm your host vaga Maradian, from the sidelines of the aerospace event in Washington DC uh, our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935 Bell has been redefining flight learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflightcom and we have something very unique three of our hosts together here uh, at this great event that is uh, brought together by the great uh, Joanna speed uh, dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities Richard Ablaff, you of the aerodynamic advisor uh, consultancy both of whom are part of our business roundtable and the great JJ Gertler who is my co-host on the air power podcast gentlemen it is such an honor and pleasure seeing you and actually doing a show live and in person it reminds me of what we tend to do at air shows it's great to be here Vago as always
1: it's really wonderful to be in the same exact place thank you
0: as opposed to each one of our pods hey are those free snacks <laughs> and a quick shout out to all of our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Guys, it's amazing uh, that we're all together here at uh, Joanna's uh, event, the aerospace event, uh, which is uh, going to be, uh, I think, an important event on the conference circuit now that it's been uh, launched. And- And uh, congratulations to both Bank of America and uh, Aerodynamic Advisory for being uh, part of the the launch sponsorship team uh, for this. Ron, let me start with you. Um, You gave a great presentation uh, following Dr. Evelyn Farkas of the McCain Institute talking about the sort of global strategic environment for defense and how it's changing and the factors that are driving it. We just saw you know, uh, Hamas attack Israel, making even more complicated, and Richard, I'm gonna ask you about that in terms of, you know, because your role here is talking about Ukraine uh, lessons and then JJU on, on budget. Give us the sense on how actually the entire defense equation is changing, and, I want, you know, and then I've got a follow-up question on what the Hamas action does for markets long-term, but give us your sense on actually the entirely different defense changing uh, equation over the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, I think a couple things you, you have to keep an eye on are the emergence of new players in the space. Um, you've got companies like Palantir and Inderel, um, Shield AI, who are you know relatively new kids on the block that are getting you know pretty meaningful real estate. Uh, another thing I think we have to keep an eye on is you know is is Pax Americana over or not, and and, and what's that mean for defense spending? Um, I think ultimately, if we're going to be supporting uh, allies and two theaters. That's going to require an, in, an increase in defense spending. That's what we're projecting in, in our work. You know, We're looking at defense spending to be something like inflation plus call it maybe 3% over the next couple of years. It might have to even be a little bit higher than that to get where we need to go. So I, I, I think unless you know, the, the, the position of the U.S. in the world changes, we're going to have to see increased investment in defense, both in the productive capacity of the industry and in actual
0: stuff. Um, the follow-up question I have is, everybody is looking at what uh, the uh, Israel's war on Hamas uh, is going to do for defense markets. There are some who see a surge, there are some who don't. It certainly complicates the production problem. We're trying to satisfy Ukrainian needs. The Israelis shipped a lot of equipment on our request to Ukraine, and now they need some of that equipment back, and ultimately, you've got what you've got, right? I mean, we're not increasing production. Give us your sense on what this new war does for defense sentiment. And then how is it we address the production problem because now there are two allies who need stuff right now?
2: Yeah, so that production problem can only be addressed by increased investment. There's, there's no other way around that. And that's not just investment in you know, you know, bricks and mortar. That's investment in people to, to support that. Um, you know, Post-COVID and the post-COVID environment, as everybody knows, the industry and the supply chain, both in aerospace and defense, has been um, uh, plagued by uh, a lack of senior talent because of uh, retirements that happened. Uh, so both on a, a capital front, um, bricks and mortar, and on a
0: personnel front, investments have to be have to be made. Um, JJ, let me take you to the uh, budget picture. Even though you're a mild-mannered co-host of the Air Power podcast, uh, you're also an analyst with the Teal Group and you spent decades uh, on the Hill. How do you look at this budgetary environment, right? Borrowing costs are going up. There's a lot of focus on the debt. There are, you know, the speaker's race is gonna be determined over the next couple of years. It could be Kevin McCarthy again, uh, for all we know. So we'll deal with that on the Washington Round Table. But give us your sense on what the budgetary dynamics of this look like, because Ron is right. The only way around this is to spend money and not just spend money on the bricks and mortar, but the people who in the great retirement got out of this business, uh, in part because, you know, how many munitions plants did we have? You know, we, we, we don't have enough people at shipyards. We don't have enough people at Silicon Valley. We don't have enough people anywhere. We were even talking about pilot shortages, right? Pay them more money as your uh, model, Richard. Give us your sense on where we are and where we're going to be going financially.
3: Well, where we are is that you've brought up a lot of long-term issues that need long-term solutions, and we're operating in a budget environment that is solely reactive to exogenous shocks. You know, the budget for the U.S. is not moving on Capitol Hill. The def- I'm supposed to talk about the 2024 defense budget at this conference, and there isn't one. So you're going to see a dance routine for about 20 minutes.
0: But By the way, having seen your moves, I think it's entertaining the crowd.
3: <laughs> Thank
0: you. There's always something to mock.
3: But- We have the Ukraine situation where Congress is supportive of additional aid to Ukraine, but that's coming as a supplemental. It's not going to go through the main defense budget, at least the way it's structured right now. Now we are likely to have a similar supplemental for Israel response. Whether the two of those become competitive with each other or are melded together into a single bill, we don't know yet. But it's only on urgent need items like that, that Congress right now, particularly the House, is able to move on defense issues. So solving a pilot crisis that is years out, at least as far as Congress sees it, doesn't really rise to the level of their attention.
0: Um, As a longtime budget watcher, though, right, it's becoming a Republican litmus test almost to be anti-Ukraine aid, not for the majority of the caucus, but certainly for Jim Jordan, right, who's one of the speaker candidates, is backed by former President Trump and is saying that, you know, Ukraine aid, Americans first. How does the Israel dynamic, right? There is going to have to be an Israel supplemental at some point in this, I would imagine, right? Or, or, you know, the president can certainly do drawdown authority, depending on how much drawdown we've got left. From your standpoint, how does this change the budget dynamic? Because there are some who are concerned, you know, Israel is an important ally. We have to be with them. We have to support them in this, including especially in the long term, right? I mean, just bombing Hamas is not going to do this to get to the next level. How do you sense this changes the budgetary dynamic?
3: Well, for one thing, that's liable to be a ground-up movement. It's not necessarily going to be leadership or even the president saying we need a supplemental. You're just as liable to see lots of members of Congress who want to support Israel say we need a supplemental for these purposes and have it come that way. But with what you were saying regarding the... uh distaste for Ukraine aid in certain circles, those are small numbers of people. Some of them are destined for leadership, which is going to complicate things. But one of the reasons that Ukraine aid was broken out as a whole separate bill was the recognition that it is wildly popular in both the House and the Senate and is last time it was up, got over 330 votes in the House. So that there is support there in the grassroots across the House of Representatives, just not necessarily in the leadership.
0: Richard, um, I'm going to get your take, right? I mean, you're looking at uh, the the lessons from uh, the Ukraine war, but clearly that has to be expanded with what we're seeing uh, from Hamas. Unprecedented use of unmanned capability. They use paragliders to be able to penetrate. They use jamming capability, uh, as well as drones to take out remote weapons turrets. Then the bulldozers come down, knock the fence, and you've got people who are being shot on the streets in their cars and in their homes or at festivals uh, on Simchat Torah. Give us your sense on how both of these conflicts are actually changing the equation in terms of capability, because at the end of the day, right, every power has sought to dominate the air, and now we're seeing a democratization of the air, the likes of which we've never seen before.
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, either unfortunate or or somehow just happenstance that the Threats we're facing now are incredibly complementary, or, 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 whatever term you use, almost synergistic. You know, we'd gotten away from operations other than war, counterinsurgency, nation building, asymmetric threats. We'd gone to peer adversary conflict, which emphasized range, air, and sea operations in the Pacific, and now we've got obviously, um, in the case of Ukraine, a return to land combat. And all of a sudden, the army can no longer be the bill payer for everybody else, because obviously, we need to bulk up in terms of uh, artillery armor and all the traditional methods of warfare. And then, oh, by the way, we're going back to asymmetric threats because of Gaza. So, oh, my God, every single aspect of potential military preparation and war fighting is being taxed here. Uh, And that, of course, puts a strain on resources. In an ideal world, well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have any of this, but in an ideal world, at least we would have one type of conflict so we could build up forces and industrial base to respond and make that fungible like okay if China's acting up we redeploy those you know commodity X there instead we've got commodities X Y and Z Uh, you know the stuff we'll be using to help Israel has no relevance whatsoever in the Pacific or probably even against Ukraine the stuff we're using in Ukraine has no relevance whatsoever in the Taiwan Straits I mean you can see what's going on here it's very challenging from a strategic prioritization of assets standpoint.
0: Um, But as a uh, word, JJ, your finger went up, so I'm going to observe the think tank two-finger rule. Simply before
3: we get too far from Gaza, this was fascinating because it was a sophisticated combined arms operation using individually insignificant arms. You had paragliders, you had drones, you had bulldozers, you had people in trucks. And yet they were put together in such a way to be devastatingly effective. The U.S. for many years has been looking at combined operations with very sophisticated systems interacting with each other. What we just saw here was that it's more the combination than any of the individual systems that makes the difference.
0: Uh, and with profound emissions control, right? They understood that the Israelis are watching all the time. Uh, and they use the rocket barrage as a distraction because everybody thought, ah, this is a rocket operation, not the rocket operation being the precursor and unfortunately not having enough troops on the Gaza border, because some of them had been moved uh, apparently uh, to the west bank we 'll see that uh, evolve a little bit more. You, you made an interesting point, uh, Richard and Ron. I want to get your sense on this because you did a great historical survey chart by the way, which was uh, fascinating. Um, you know why is it that everybody has these grossly mistaken ideas about what the future of warfare are because it 's yeah you know sometimes it 's I need to build up the Royal Navy to protect myself against you know, the French fleet and stuff like that and prevent an invasion. Uh, but ultimately, you've also had to have large land armies because wars happen on a fairly regular basis, history shows. From your standpoint, what, what are we forgetting or are we just being Pollyanna that, you know, penny pack, you know, 35 F-35s and, you know, as long as you have 25, uh, you, know, uh, you know, special operators, you're gonna be fine in this world. And we find time and again that that's not the case, and that equipment gets consumed in titanic numbers when real shooting happens. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday at AUSA, who was like, who was a West Point graduate and a former general officer, and and she was like, I cannot conceive of 40,000 rounds a day being shot in modern warfare, and that's what we're doing. You know, um, if there's one recurring theme in military
1: history, it's that every generation seems to have a exactly the surprise it's an important theme you know we haven't learned it since the 73 war before that it had been korea before that of course world war ii but basically everyone has these sort of you know it goes back to queen victoria's little wars you know it's just i think it was Black Adder, rowan atkinson's humorous character who said you know i you know basically spend all my time in hill stations and in kenya you know uh, just you know propositioning women <laughs> whatever and then all of a sudden four million heavily armed germans hob into view it was a real shock i can tell you. You. And it's sort of like that. Every, every 40, 50, however many years, there's this shock of what it's like to be in a conflict with a peer adversary. And it, oh boy, an, a, an enduring one. It uses enormous amounts of resources. It requires a total mobilization of the economy, uh, a much greater role of government, as we saw with Ron's government spending chart. That cyclicality reflects exactly that dynamic. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, but we find ourselves in one of those great strategic surprise moments here.
0: Um, give us a reprise of that chart. Cause there were two charts that were really good. I want to ask you about the history of warfare one and the other one about interest rates going back to 3000 BC, which we're going to discuss <laughs> next.
2: Yeah. So if you if just look at the history of warfare in Europe, if you go back 2000 years, there's been about 500 wars. So that's about one more every four years. So if we're having a land war in Europe, that really shouldn't surprise anybody i mean as sad as that sounds
0: that's just history yeah uh, so about interest rates right um obviously it's something that uh is uh a reality right you have government spending the u.s government spending going back to 1791 uh you also did that with european spending levels right and where we were civil war was 14 percent, i think world war uh, one was 24%, 44% was World War II. Then you had the financial crisis, which was I think 48 and 54, did I get that right? A brief glance at your chart, uh, which was COVID uh, spending. Where are we going on the debt and the servicing of the debt? The servicing of the debt is now northward, or $750 billion. I think it's the number four element in the budget. And JJ, I want to get your t- a sense on this as well. right? Debt didn't matter until it suddenly matters, and then it matters a lot. And all one political leader, like Silvio Berlusconi, makes one stupid remark, then doubles down on it. And all of a sudden, your borrowing rates go through the roof. Where are we going on this? How's the street looking at it? Because ultimately, there's a sense the United States will never default okay, we had a deal not to default in June, but that's pretty much you know, was vi- is being violated right now as we speak. What's the sense on debt and what does it mean and how does that ultimately affect defense spending? Even if we have to spend money on defense, right? People want their entitlements. Yeah. So I would say this, the street tends to look at it from the interest rate point of view, right?
2: They don't really tend to look at it as uh, the percentage of GDP, which I think is actually pretty informing. Um, now, so the, the debate today is you've got interest rates hovering around five, five and a half percent. Where do they go from here? What could drive them higher? If, if, the, if the markets get more worried about U.S. debt, that worry will reflect itself in interest rates. Um, so, so, we'll see. Now, the, the, the thing that I think you can get some comfort from in the short to medium term, it's always, you know, are you the best house in a bad neighborhood? And you just have to compare our economy and our debt to other countries, and you have to look at the whole picture. So looking at debt in isolation isn't exactly fair. But your point, I think, is well taken that as the debt gets bigger, you do have to pay attention to it. And one day, um, the market will. And when that day happens, that 5% interest rate could go to 10 or 12. And then things get really expensive. Uh, My observation, and, and maybe JJ can correct me on this, is necessity is usually the mother of of invention. And if we get to a, a situation where the markets really start worrying about US debt, that would probably make Congress take action. Although maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. JJ. We've seen Congress come right up to the edge on
3: defaulting on all of their obligations. So I'm not as confident as Ron is that the right thing will happen at the right time. But we have a national debt that right now is the same size as the defense budget. That's never happened before, and we don't even know what a world like that looks like. The annual service on that debt is significant. It's going to compete with other programs, and it's going to compete with other programs more and more. And as le- as we've seen in Congress, there is a declining uh, unanimity about the importance of defense. Debt payment will become a rival for maintaining a national defense, and that's something that Not only every American, but certainly every one of the companies and businesses that Ron interacts with, that Richard advises, that listen to this podcast, is going to have to be conscious of.
0: Paxim and Arcana is hinging on it. Richard?
1: Yeah. I mean, like Ron, I really like long-term trend lines. And uh, the good news is that uh, there's absolutely no correlation between defense spending and any econometric driver whatsoever in history. The bad news is this time things might be different you know never say it's you know <laughs> it's different this time but it might be different this time because of the political dimension you've never had such factionalism and such frankly uh, people who really aren't this whole you know america firstism again i thought we'd vanquished that back in the late 1930s but apparently not um, and because of that they're effectively using the argument uh, there's no structural reason that you can't spend more. Absolutely not in times of national emergency. Absolutely. All those spikes you saw on Ron's chart, those reflected a prioritization of responding to a really grim set of circumstances. There's no reason we couldn't do it again. The only problem, however, is that people are going to use this as an argument to get their agenda across. And frankly, sometimes that agenda might be in favor of other autocrats out there in the world. And that means not funding Ukraine or, you know, conceivably even not funding Israel.
0: Um, I want to ask about uh, globalization a little bit on this and whether or not you guys know of any work. I mean, we talk about this regularly on the Washington Roundtable, not so much on the Air Power podcast, and it doesn't really float up that often in the uh, daily uh, coverage, although I do try to raise this issue. But how are we making... You know, Dr. Thomas Barnett in his new book, America's New Map, is saying that we created one of the most important global growth engines in history, which was the globalized free trade system. Uh, Bretton Woods and everything that came after World War II, the global rules-based order. And now we've somehow, everybody is turning on that global rules-based order. There's more, right? One of your big concerns is controlled planned economies, industrial strategy is good having industrial strategy masquerading as protectionism is very bad ultimately it's the last refuge of the scoundrel ultimately is anybody doing any good work on what the negative national implications economically is going to be for doing this Last time we propped up the auto industry, in it, and it ended really badly for the auto industry. The reason the American auto industry is competitive is it's had, you know, Ford and General Motors and Chrysler have to compete against Toyota, and they do, and now everybody's the better for it. We have cars that actually, like, almost never fail over long periods of time, touch stainless steel. I mean, you know, why don't you start us off on that, Ron? Right? Like, what does that mean right now? And is there any good work on what the financial impact of this is going to be? So, um
2: not that I know it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? I mean, it's, it's not a, a subject that I have focused on intensely, but I think your, your point is well taken. Um, if, if you remove competition, as uncomfortable as that competition may be, it's generally never a good thing. If you think about it just on a very personal level, we're all driven by, by our competitors to do better. Um, so if you remove a competitor and you have just sort of this support that, call it industry tenure, Right? Um, I, I can't see ultimately, in the long run, how that is good for the industry involved. And the automotive industry is I think, a great example. The greatest compliment to the international order the United
3: States shaped. And was mentioned in his speech earlier today at this conference is that China now wants to take control of that international order and run it for its benefit. They looked at it, they said, hey, this is a good thing. This can really work. The only problem is it's favoring the United States.
1: We want the same deal, but we want to be in charge. Richard? Well, uh, I could spend a moment being you know, violently in line with my colleagues, but uh, I, look, we're all, we all are in complete agreement. The only thing I would add. Uh, is that ultimately, any kind of well-funded, very well-funded industrial policy, uh, coupled with protectionism, reduces economic efficiency and most of all, consumes productive resources, taking it away from other things to spend money on that would be, frankly, better for the world, like protecting (laughs) democracies and, and everything like that. The sad truth is that this is the first time uh, and I'll credit uh, Dr. Mohamed El-Aryan for this thesis, this is the first time in uh, well over half a century where the defining condition of the world economy is not inadequate demand but inadequate supply. And ultimately that problem is exacerbated by industrial policy. It's speaking,
3: oh go ahead JJ. And possibly exacerbated even further if you have a global economic order that is run by countries that do not have free markets.
2: Yeah, I just uh, the comment that I was going to say, if you have you know major players in that equation that aren't kind of quote-unquote playing by the rules, it complicates things. And you can see how some of the protectionism would arise, because ultimately you don't want your industry secrets or whatever to be hijacked by any other players. So for that global system to ultimately work, everybody kind of has to play sort of by the same rules, not exactly the same rules, but... You know closely by the same rules and and then I think it 's just a matter of patience because patience because ultimately the player who's not playing by the same rules, I do think ultimately will lose, but over what time frame, and that time frame could be decades
0: um, I want to ask a quick uh, environmental uh, as well as ESG uh, question right I mean climatologically we 're seeing it was the hottest september right it 's only going to get worse from here, pretty much as everybody is acknowledging that it just gets worse from here, right. New York City is not only subsiding in places, but actually the water levels are rising. So it's a perfect storm, and we saw during Sandy, right, with devastating implications for uh, New York. The recent flooding was also unprecedented, uh, that we saw very damaging to the city, and that's going to go on everywhere, uh, right, around the world. Are we A? planning for that because it's going to be a budget item at the same time right i mean what's more existential sending weapons and you know support you know to ukraine and israel and supporting our allies and partners and preparing for a fight from china or holy crap new york city is underwater or parts of florida miami are regularly underwater richmond is underwater California is flame you know ultimately richard start us off on like okay what impact does this all have and then tie that to the esg model right i mean wall street has tried to tried to do a nice thing but it's actually not making any money for anybody ultimately is actually hampering it and I want your Airbus example here in a minute in a run but anyway give us the sense on both of these dynamics
1: well you know it's hard to be optimistic about this and of course the tragedy of the commons is very much at work and it might be individual horrors that play out because of climate change and whatever else but there'll be enough shall we say market distortions such as government insurance whatever that smooth over some of that Uh, And, of course, uh, a lot of the pain is going to be focused on the global south. It tends to have a little less political power. Um, You know, there was a piece about the rise of uninhabitable regions in places like Lahore, Pakistan. You know, okay. (laughs) That's unfortunately not going to receive as much attention as if it were New York City or something.
0: And it will drive conflict.
1: And it will drive conflict. And we'll just say, okay, that's a no-go zone. That's it. No problem. Just stay away. (laughs) Uh, so it's, it's, it's very concerning, but it's hard to see what the impact will be uh, upon the uh, the spending environment aside from a degradation of growth rates as a consequence of the costs associated with it. At least on the U.S. government side. There's only going to be an impact if
3: everybody agrees that there's a problem. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously said, you are entitled to your own opinions, you are not entitled to your own facts. But what we see with specifically regard to climate change in Congress is different people using different sets of facts to decide whether there's even a problem or not. And if we cannot agree that there's a problem, we can't begin to address it in budgets. When Ron's chart showed spending spikes for World War One, World War II, Korea, it was because everybody agreed that there was a problem, we needed to spend money to fix it. That's nowhere near happening on climate change.
0: And this is as existential, if not even more existential fundamentally than anything else is. Ron, your sense and that interesting ESG chart, yeah.
2: Yeah, again, it kind of gets back to you know, how, you know, lit, you know Prescribing change at a government level for the environment, I think, is is difficult. Um, you know, ultimately, I think the responsibility in the end comes back to consumers. Right? Do you want to support an industry or not that may or may not be having an adverse impact on the environment? And it, it, I think that, that change can be driven by the ultimate end user. Um, and back to JJ's point, they all don't agree, right? So it's it's. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tenuous situation. On the ESG front, the, the thing there that's really tricky, and I've, I've said this a number of times, when you think about ESG, environmental, social, governance, investing, governance is governance is actually reasonably easy to measure. Just look at a proxy statement. You can see who's on the board. You can see how management's paid. You can, you, can, you know, make some judgments around, you know, how a company is structured. But when you think about uh, social and environmental, Quantifying that becomes very, very difficult, uh, and, and I think that's one of the fundamental weaknesses in ESG investing: is quantifying environmental and social in a way that makes sense. Um, the, the ultimate goal of ESG investing is ultimately it's very noble, right? I mean, you know, you know, invest in a way that you're you can make a gain, and and but you're also doing good, right? You know, do good by doing well. Who was that Merck or whoever said that? Um, the yeah, you know, but but the the devil's always in the details of how you de- you deploy it. So just to give you an, an example um, that I, I find ironic. Um, if you look at I have clients in Germany and many investors in Germany, um, you know pension funds or whatever, can invest in Airbus because it's a defense company, um, even though it's the largest industrial com- com- company in Europe and has a gigantic footprint in Germany. Um, and I, I've just always found that just you know just somehow counterproductive. Another example, um, Germany is, you know, is buying F-35s, but German investors can't invest in Lockheed. So you have you know, a national security policy that's not in line with a public investment policy.
0: Uh, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. A uh, panel is about to break out. 30 seconds. Some of your takeaways from AUSA after two days there.
2: Yeah, so, so you know, I always like to wander around and see who's there in the presence. And just, just like um, the Air Force Association show, I, I think it was all about building stuff. Um, there was a lot of things on display, uh, a lot of land system stuff on display, and then finally the presence of the new players. Palantir and Durrell, those guys all had a big presence at the show where just maybe five, six years ago they wouldn't have.
0: Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Look forward to seeing you all again tomorrow. Thanks very much and have a great day.